I'm going to be reading, starting in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and read through verse 8 of chapter 3, uh, preaching specifically on verses 23 through 25 of John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who had sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your Holy Spirit, which illuminates your word. Um, Father, for the, the gift of your Son, which purchased um, our souls, Lord, that we may be um, in your family. Father, I pray now that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word, through the magnification of your word, that, Father, we would glean something um, more of you, uh, a better truth of, of who you are and the love that you have for us. Thank you, Father. Again, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so I was given the task of preaching through John chapter 3. Um, when I was first given this task, um, I was pretty excited. I was pretty confident, thinking that I knew the stories of John chapter 3 and all the contents that are in there. And I also found out I wasn't alone in thinking this way. R.C. Sproul, when he was in Bible college, um, was taking a course on the book of John. And he was given a test 
on John chapter 3. And he was pretty excited about getting this test because he thought he had a great handle on chapter 3 of the book of John. He ended up getting a C on the test. Up until the day that he entered into glory, he still believed that this portion of the New, of the New Testament is one of the hardest to handle adequately. I'm sure now, though, um, R.C. has a much better handle on this than any of us could possibly even fathom. So, the Apostle John, when he, um, when he wrote this gospel, had a very specific purpose. And that purpose is found in chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John began this gospel by um, elevating the name of Christ to such a high point that the first 18 verses of chapter 1 became the focal point for three centuries of the church in trying to rightly know their Savior. He had one goal in mind, to make much of the person of Jesus and for us to see him as God incarnate, the word of God, the light and life of men, full of grace and truth, radiating the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He had a high view of Jesus and he wrote this account of his life and ministry so that we would believe and in believing would have eternal life. Now, while the word of God is inspired, the chapter breaks and the verse numbers aren't, which is why when I was given chapter three to preach on, I had to actually go back to chapter two, um, verses 23 and 25. For these three verses are like the cartilage between our bones. They connect one to another. They actually connect the things that have happened up into that point with the things that are gonna be happening in chapter three. Now, cartilage doesn't provide strength to bones. Um, it doesn't really give them integrity, and it doesn't really make them, well, more bony. But what it does is it makes it possible for bones to work properly together, for our arms to work properly, uh, for our legs to work properly. It connects them in a systematic and orderly fashion. That's what three, these three verses do. They connect the events that, that had um, occurred up into that point the choosing of the disciples, the miracle of changing water to wine, the cleansing of the temple, and the interaction that Jesus had with those Jews with the interactions that we're going to read about and see in John chapter 3. Now, in most instances, most instances in his gospel, John gives important background information. For instance, the turning water to wine. In this story, the background allows us to know why Jesus was at the wedding and why running out of wine was so important to Mary. To the first century Jews, this information would have spoke volumes to them. For us, we have to dig a little bit, but once we do, we, we actually gain more um, into the miracle that happened there, and it's much more meaningful. The same is true in our verse today. Most time of the year, there, there would have been small crowds at the temple. Um, during Jewish holidays, crowds would have gained a little bit of, um, in attendance as people came together to be with their families and celebrate the Jewish holidays. But we're told that this was not just any Jewish holiday, this was the Passover. There is nothing that we know of in America that can compare to the Passover. There's really, there's no holiday outside of maybe what the Muslims do at Ramadan or whatever, where so many people gather for such an event. 
there's estimates of over a million people coming to Jerusalem for the Passover uh, on an annual basis. They came together um, to celebrate the Passover, and it was also a time for the, um, the nation to remember what God had done in saving them from the Egyptians in the Exodus. And they also looked forward to the coming Messiah that he had promised through his prophets. It was in this setting that Jesus went into the court of the Gentiles during the Passover and removed the religious distractions from the only place where non-Jews were allowed to worship. It's also with this background in mind that we're told in verse 23 that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, John hasn't given us many instances of signs up to this point. Remember that his gospel was never about a moment-by-moment or a day-by-day event um, uh, chronology of Jesus's life. It was actually, um, I'm sorry, uh, later he states in his gospel, um, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in his book, chapter 20, verse 30. And he finished this gospel in chapter 21, 25 by saying this, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written in. So it would be safe to assume that life with Jesus was far from ordinary. However, he didn't do signs and wonders to entertain. And he didn't do it to garner the approval of men. He didn't do them to elicit belief belief in him or to prove to men that he is the Messiah, as if they were the judge and jury in this matter. He is the Messiah, and he knew it. He performed signs which are revelations of who he is and wonders the redemptive acts born out of his attributes to reveal God is gracious. We modern people think of signs and wonders as glitches in our system uh, or an interruption in the natural order by the supernatural. Or we go to the other extreme and are so casual about them that when we read about them, we dismiss them as superstition or we just race over them as we read them. But these Jews, the Jews who lived in the day, had grown up on the stories of the great miracles of the prophets of old. Moses and the Exodus, Elijah and his 16 miracles, and then Elisha and his 32 miracles, and even Daniel. They looked for the coming Messiah, who would do these works and even greater works in the restoration of all things. They had hope of the coming Messiah, who would fulfill the prophecies of old, upon whom God would set his new covenant, and who would make all things new in restoring the kingdom. This was the climate that Jesus came into. He came making bold claims that he was the Messiah, but he carried no sword. And he seemed to challenge the Jewish religious leaders more often than he did the pagan Roman ones. And at the same time, the people saw him doing great signs and wonders, suspending the natural order of things by turning water into wine, healing whomever he chose, bringing the dead to life, and even controlling the weather. His miracles, signs, and wonders were done to bring glory and honor to his father, in submission to his father, and it was the father's will that his son be glorified. There's an incident that happens later in the book of John where Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The religious leaders become heated over the fact that their their Sabbath rules have been broken, and then outraged when Jesus called God his father. This was his response to them. So Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves his son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whomever he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor him, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. The signs and wonders that Jesus did weren't ways for him to show off his power. After all, he had given up his former glory to come to earth to do the will of his Father. The signs and wonders that he did are revelations of the proof concerning the statements he made about himself. He pointed to them as undeniable physical proof that he was the Messiah. He did this in John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. He said, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that, I, um, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. We're told in verse 23 that it was because of these signs that many believed in his name. And anyone who saw the redemptive wonders couldn't help but be moved by them, couldn't deny them as miraculous. And many were hopeful that the Messiah had finally come to rescue them from Rome. Tim Keller has this to say, Miracles lead not to simply cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe and wonder. Jesus' miracles, in particular, were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and raise the dead. The people who saw these signs and wonders were sincere in their belief, convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. So, if these people believed in his name, then what are we to make of verses 24 and 25? Herein lies the rub. The answer is all wrapped up in what it was they believed in. Speaking of their belief or faith, John Calvin had this to say. Yet this was not a pretended faith by which they wished to gain reputation among men, for they were convinced that Christ was some great prophet, and perhaps even ascribe to him the honor of being the Messiah, of whom there was at, at this time a strong and general expectation. But as they did not understand the peculiar office of the Messiah, their faith was absurd, because it was exclusively directed to the world and earthly things. It was a cold belief, and un un uh, unaccompanied by the true feeling of the heart. For hypocrites assent to the gospel, not that they may devote themselves in obedience to Christ, nor with a sincere piety that they may follow Christ when he calls them, but because they do not venture to reject entirely the truth by which they had known, especially where they can find no reason for opposing it. For as they do not voluntarily or of their own accord make war with God, so when they perceive that his doctrine is opposed to their flesh and to their perverse desires, they are immediately offended or at least withdraw from the faith which they had already embraced. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. On the surface, that's, this makes Jesus look like he's a callous person, 
um, like he's dealt with people for a long time and he's just been hardened by that. But this isn't what is meant of Jesus. He was and is the spotless Lamb of God. He had no sin nature in him and not for one second of his life did he ever act in a selfish or self-centered manner. His entire life was God-centered. So what is it meant, or what is meant then that he knew all people? Or what about verse 25 when it says, He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These two verses aren't given as descriptors of Jesus. They're an explanation of the belief of the people that are uh, spoken of in verse 23. A belief that was sincere, but was also sincerely wrong. Proverbs 30, verse 12, tells us that there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Again, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is a way unto death. These verses don't just speak to those people that are unwilling to bend their knee to Christ, but also to the many who claim Christ as their Savior, but are not truly His. We make much of people who say that they believe convincing ourselves that we don't need to share the gospel with them because they say, well, I believe in God. And they may even say that I believe Jesus is God. But Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, John Calvin on verse 25. He says, because he knew them all, nothing is more dangerous than hypocrisy. For this reason, among others, that it's an exceedingly common fault. There is scarcely any man who is not pleased with himself. And while they deceive themselves by empty flatteries, we imagine that God is blind like ourselves. But here we are reminded how widely his judgment differs from ours, for he sees clearly those things which we cannot perceive, because they are concealed by some disguise, and he estimates according to their hidden source, that is, according to the most secret feeling of the heart, those things which dazzle our eyes by false luster. This is what Solomon says, that God weighs in his balance the hearts of men while they flatter themselves in their ways. Let us remember, therefore, that none are the true disciples of Christ, but those whom he approves, because in such a matter he alone is competent to decide and to judge. That you believe is not what is important. Who you believe in is. You can find sincere and yet wrong belief in a Mormon temple, or in a Muslim mosque, or in a Jehovah's Witness meeting house, and in a Southern Baptist church. It's not the act of believing that saves you. It's the object of your belief that does. The people who are spoken of as believing on Jesus in John 2, 23, believed incorrectly about who Jesus is. They believed incompletely concerning his lordship, and Jesus knew it. They believed in the man Jesus, a man that they thought was just like him, a man that they figured they could manipulate these people wanted Jesus to reign over their kingdom. They wanted him to be their Messiah as they determined him to be. This is a difference between how they believed and saving belief. 
And the reason that they believed incorrectly was that they were in bondage to sin, a slavery that they were born into. It was in their DNA due to Adam, and they had personalized it themselves through their own actions. Their hearts, which should have been alive to God, soft to his touch, were cold, hard, and bitter. This is not to say that they couldn't be concerned or, um, about other people or even do acts of kindness, but even these actions were self-centered. If there were ever a people who should have been able to believe that Jesus was God, it was these people. If there were ever a people who could be saved through signs and wonders, it would have been these people. They had them, they had him in their midst. They were witness to his signs and wonders. More importantly, they were witness to his life. These people are the proof text that no one can come to Christ, no one can believe on his name outside of the miracle of regeneration. The signs and wonders that Jesus performed are amazing, and the compassion that he showed toward the people around him in feeding the hungry and healing the hurting are as amazing as well. While these signs and wonders are amazing, none of them truly demonstrate his majesty or bring greater glory to his name more than the implications that are made by verses 24 and 25. The greatest demonstration of the majesty and glory of Jesus is found in his grace and mercy for people like us. See, Jesus actually knows people. He's not just a good therapist. He's not good at knowing the character traits of people. He answered the thoughts of the scribes in Luke 5.22. He did the same thing to the Pharisee concerning the woman who was weeping at his feet in Luke 7. He spoke to the doubt of Thomas concerning the resurrection in John 27. He knew all about the woman at the well. He is privy to every aspect of our lives. He knows every thought in our mind and every sin which we've ever committed. We want people to think highly of us. We do our very best to present a polished image to people. We want everyone to, to like us. If this wasn't true, there wouldn't be billions of dollars spent alone in this country every year on cosmetics and fashion and jewelry, or countless hours spent every day by people who are trying to make themselves look much better than they really are. It's easy to fool strangers into thinking good about us. It's harder to fool people who live close to us. But the truth is, is that the people that live close to us, if they actually were able to get into our minds just for one second, to see our thoughts would be so repulsed that that relationship would be destroyed forever. We truly are like the Frankenstein monster, a horrible caricature of the person we are first created to be. We are treasonous rebels that are convinced of our own good. We are crazed terrorists, hell-bent at overthrowing the reigning government. We are Adolf Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Osama bin Laden, all rolled up in one. And as proof of this, we'll deny that it's true, at least on our own minds. This is what verse 24 means when it says that Jesus knew them all. This is how he knows you and me. The sad truth is that we still try and hide our sin from him. We think that by not confessing our sin to him that he won't know. We wall off our hearts and hold on to our personal hurt and pain. We cruise the internet, think, you know, looking at things we shouldn't. 
We judge our brothers and sisters with malice in our hearts all the while we reach out our hand and shake, you know, we reach out and shake their hand. And worse yet, we live fearful and untrusting lives in the sovereignty of our God, all the while thinking we get away, we're getting away with it. We're not. But this is the way that Jesus knows us. He knows our every thought and the intent behind every action. He knows the love that we have for him and the love that we don't. He knows the pitiful state of his treasonous creation and that we would gladly accept him as savior just to keep from our, getting our just rewards, but we would never submit to him as Lord or see him as beautiful and lovely or worthy to be praised outside of the regeneration of our cold, dead hearts. We have the Bible. We have the record of all the signs and wonders that Jesus did. Then the greatest miracle, his death, burial, and resurrection. And yet, we demand more. That's what makes the demands of people for, in our generation for miracles and signs and wonders so hideous. Jesus knows that no miracle or sign or wonder will ever bring saving faith. And nothing can save us from the coming judgment of our holy and just God, save a miracle. It is a miracle that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son as a propitiation for sin, but that's not the miracle that I'm talking about. Now, don't get me wrong. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ paid in full the price for sin and brought about reconciliation between God and his children. But there has to be one more miracle that happens before that blood is applied to his children. The miracle is regeneration. It's after this miracle that the regenerated new heart can respond to the gospel message and be saved. B.B. Warfield said, the saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the almighty Savior on whom it rests. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but that Christ saves through faith. Signs, miracles, and sincere belief cannot bring about salvation or produce saving faith. Romans 10:17 says, faith comes by hearing, and not just hearing a best life now message, but by hearing the word of God. I said earlier that these verses acted like cartilage between what has taken place in chapter two and the interactions in chapter three. But not only do they speak of the, the faith of these people, but they also are given to us as means for us to rightly understand the motivation of Jesus and give insights into his actions as he's dealing with folks in chapter three. He wants to make sure that we don't confuse as to why Jesus came to earth, why he offered himself as a sacrifice for humans. He had no false illusions concerning people. He knew us for what we are. And he's much too majestic and his kingdom is much too large to have entrusted himself to these people or us. He would not be king of their kingdom and he would not be savior of their world, nor ours either. His life, his signs and wonders and his resurrection were the foundation that he laid upon which his gospel was built. Going back to the chapter five, John chapter five verse that I quoted earlier, where Jesus said he only did what he saw his father doing. He finished it with this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears the word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is why getting the gospel right is so crucial. The false gospel, the false Messiah that had been preached and taught by the religious leader in the days of Jesus had made much of man and little of God. 
and it did prepare the hearts of the people for the true Messiah who was there in their midst. They could see the signs and wonders. They could hear Jesus talk about the true Passover lamb and the true temple, but they couldn't hear the saving truth of their Savior's words. This is the same gospel that is being preached today in most churches, and this is why the watered-down, humanistic, and best-life-now gospel is so sinister. A.W. Pink had this to say concerning this teaching. He said, the gospel of Satan, that's an interesting phrase, the gospel of Satan is not a system of revolutionary principles, nor a program of anarchy. It does not promote strife and war, but aims at peace and unity. It seeks not to set mother against daughter or father against son, but fosters as a fraternal spirit whereby the human race is regarded as one great brotherhood. It does not seek to drag down the natural man, but to improve him and uplift him. It advocates education and cultivation and appeals to the best in what is in the, within us. It endeavors to occupy man so much with this world that he has no time or inclination to think of the world to come. It propagates the principles of self-sacrifice, charity, benevolence, and teaches us to live for the good of others and to be kind to all. It appeals strongly to the carnal mind and is popular with the masses because it ignores the solemn facts that by nature man is a fallen creature alienated from the life of God and dead in trespasses and sin, and the only hope lies in being born again. And then speaking of those that come to Christ, that are, come to Christ under this gospel, he says, for such to depend on him for pardon in life is not faith, but blatant presupposition. It is but to add insult to injury. For any such to take his holy name upon their polluted lips and profess him to be followers is the most terrible blasphemy and comes perilously nigh to committing that sin for which there is no forgiveness. That modern evangelism is encouraging and producing such a hideous and Christ dishonoring monstrosities. Jesus wouldn't be their God. He wouldn't be their Messiah. A God was at, that was at their beck and call a God that was more concerned about their felt needs than about their eternal condition, a God that would bring about peace in their world but cared nothing about holiness. His signs, his wonders, and his life were all a demonstration of the holiness of God in stark contrast to the wickedness of man, revealing the truth of, the tree, of our treason against God and the sure righteous judgment that is our just reward. This truth, that we're all guilty of treason and all fallen short of the glory of God, is what makes the good news good. The Jesus that the Mormons believe in, that the Muslims acknowledge, or the JW study, and that's being preached today in most Christian churches, is not the true Messiah. And that gospel is not his gospel. It's bankrupt in its saving faith. There are many people today in churches that are believe, that actually believe, and they're sincere in their belief, but they believe wrong. Paul knew this to be true in his generation. He told the believers in Corinth as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He said, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Don't disregard this test. Don't despise this examination. Don't shy away from it. This examination, just like any other examination, doesn't judge, 
All it does is reveal truth. Don't think that attendance in a church, even a reformed church, is proof of salvation. Jesus didn't send these people away. The ones in John chapter 2, verse 23, he didn't send them away because they believed incorrectly about him. He didn't separate them from the true believers. They remained with him for much of his ministry, some of them up until the very end. Dear ones, we are to take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows us. He knew us from the beginning of creation. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. What do you believe? What Messiah do you believe in? I know that you're sincere in your belief, otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here. But so were these people. They were sincere in their belief as well. They believed in the person Jesus as their savior, a Jesus that wouldn't offend them, that wouldn't challenge them in their daily lives. And the frightening thing is it didn't do them any good. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to save sinners, to save sinners from the coming wrath that they earned through their sin. He saves them in order to bring glory to his name through their regeneration in their loving submission to his will in their lives. Dear ones, test yourselves. Don't neglect this test. There is nothing more important than passing this test. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth which is revealed in your word, Lord, um, that you just do not shy away from it all, that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that if there are any here that believe incorrectly about you, that Father, that through your Holy Spirit, that you would convict them of their sin and they would cry out to you and be saved. Father, thank you for your family. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.